you know, focus on the work because the work doesn't care about you. It doesn't know if you're, you know, a big shot or not. It doesn't know if you're famous. Uh, the work doesn't care. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Bay Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? If you want specific outcomes in your life, then you are a designer. These are the immortal words of Canadian multi-hyphenate visionary Bruce Mao. From architecture to advertising to product design, Bruce has worked across a broad spectrum of disciplines that have changed the way we approach problems and see the world. His name is exalted by many and yet unfamiliar to others. What is certain, however, is that the impact of his work has been felt around the world. He's the one who Coca-Cola asked to restructure their entire organization and identity towards sustainability. He was the one who city players from Mecca, yes, the Mecca, Islam's holiest city, approached him to redesign the Hajj. And after 36 years of civil war, he was the guy that Guatemala commissioned to literally rebrand the country and its ability to hope for the future. These are but a few projects that illustrate the scale and influence of Bruce's work. And yet for someone whose accomplishments have had such an impact, it is perhaps his approach to his work that Bruce is most admired for. A radical optimist, his belief is that designers do not have the luxury of cynicism if we want to change the world. It's a tough pill to swallow when you consider the times that we live in today, but Bruce charges forward. On today's episode, I'm joined by the legendary designer to discuss his illustrious career, growing up in Sudbury, Ontario, the power of optimism, and the making of the first feature-length documentary on him, Mao. Hi, Bruce. How are you? It's such an honor to be speaking with you today. I'm terrific. Thank you. Thank thank you for, for having me. So there's a lot to talk about today that I want to chat with you about. You have such a a wide breadth of work and scope and just so many different things. Um, We're here to talk about design, optimism, your life, um, and of course, Mao, which is the first feature-length documentary about you and your work. So um, it's going to be a fun conversation, but maybe we can just start off with talking about, you know, you're frequently called many things, uh, a visionary, a thinker of our times, a radical optimist, but how do you describe yourself? A designer. A designer. Uh, I mean, I think of it as, you know, it's a, it's a really open category. I think a designer does all of those things. (laughs) It has to be all those things. Um, And so I I just think uh, that's what I do. You know, I, I apply design to problems. Uh, whatever the problem is, and you've worked obviously in such a uh, on such a spectrum of different disciplines through the lens of designs from architecture to advertising to product design. Ultimately, though, what is your overall design philosophy? Like, what is the through line that connects your work across such a diversity of clients and projects? Well, I think that uh, there there are kind of few things. One is that 
you know, we've been developing what we call life-centered design, which is that um, instead of putting humans at the center, and, and you know, for those who don't know, um, human-centered design is really the kind of conventional, almost unchallenged method in design education uh, over the last you know, 20 or 30 years. And we've said, look, we, sh- we have to take the humans out of the center and put life at the center. And we should come to life along with all other living species and honor and respect life. Uh, so it shouldn't, we shouldn't really put humans at the center. We're not the center of the universe. Uh, we have to put life at the center. And when, when you do that, it changes everything. You know, it changes how you use materials, what kind of energy you use. I mean, it really informs everything else that you do. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, life-centered design is really the kind of foundational idea. Yeah, and I definitely want to um, talk a little bit more about that and how we can really harness a sense of empathy and humility in terms of how we approach problems. Um, but while I was watching the documentary, you said, quote, if you want specific outcomes in your life, then you're a designer, end quote. So how can we all embrace a designer way of thinking? And when you design for a solution, are you simply saying that you're creating a plan and manifesting that end goal? Because there must be, you know, something more to that than when when you're considering how you define a designer in your eyes. Well, I I think what's important is to acknowledge that you're a designer. To first of all under, understand that you live a designed life. Your life is a designed life. Uh, you live inside of design environments. You use design products. You communicate through design interfaces. You you drive designed products through designed infrastructures, your life is a designed life. So the quality of that design is the quality of your life. Mm. Therefore, getting to be a designer, like beginning to think like a designer and learning to use the method of design and the tools of design to improve the quality of your life is really a a kind of good idea and a a smart strategy. Uh, And so for me, it's just a pretty straightforward idea to say, since I'm a designer, I should really learn how to design. Um, And if you think about, you know, like, like you said, the moment you have a desired outcome, you're a designer. The moment you say, I want a specific outcome, you're a designer, because the world bifurcates, it's either, you know, random and accidental, or design, you either you know, choose to accept random outcomes and you say, whatever happens, that's fine. Or you say, I want a specific outcome. And the moment you say that, you you have decided you're going to design it. Um, And so once that happens, you should get yourself some good design tools. Um, And anything that can help you do that is going to make the, the quality of your life better. Yeah. And I mean, when it comes to the work that you've, um, you know, worked on throughout your career, ultimately, what do you think defines or makes up a great design experience, whether that's consuming a product or taking in an ad campaign or a government campaign? What does that really come down to? Uh, It really comes down to empathy. Like the core operating system of design is caring. You know, I did a lecture for the Cooper Hewitt on their collection. Cooper Hewitt is the Smithsonian Design Museum in New York. And 
once a year they commission a lecture on their collection. And so I was, you know, I was looking at, you know, they have tens of thousands of objects. And I was trying to understand what's the common denominator in all these different things. They have technologies and textiles and images and, you know, everything you could imagine that can be designed, which is everything. And I realized that the common denominator that makes it worthy of being in the Smithsonian is that people cared more, that you know, basically the designers were able to care more about the end user, about the implications, about the community. And I realized that, that ultimately what design is really about is caring. And so you know, what we care about is that user, but you can't have a thriving citizen in a toxic community. So we naturally extend our caring to the community. And you can't have a thriving community in a toxic ecology. So we naturally extend our caring to the ecology, which explains why so many designers are involved in the environmental movement, why we care about the environment, uh, because it's really part of our user experience. You know, you, you, we want our user to be successful. And to do that, they need to have, you know, a, a safe and thriving environment. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there is a, a very large theme around optimism and the dialogue that when it comes to your work and your perspective and the way you approach projects and challenges. Uh -huh. Some people would argue that cynicism helps us survive and it helps us to keep us alive and helps us to prepare for the worst case scenario. By that definition, what role does optimism play for you? And what would you say to some of the people that, you know, are, are a little bit less uh, positive, I guess? Well, one of the principles that we apply in our work and that we published in um, MC24, the book, the book that the film is really based on, begin with fact-based optimism. That's a very important formulation. It's not just optimism. It's not, you know, Pollyanna, head in the sand optimism. It's fact-based optimism. Look at the data. Look at what's really happening. Because what's really happening is absolutely extraordinary. This is far and away the best time in human history to be alive and working. By a long shot, not by a little, you know, not by his margin. Uh, this is the best time by a long shot. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have, you know, radically difficult challenges. And in fact, problems that are orders of magnitude greater than any we've ever seen. That we don't have, you know, uh, new problems that are really success problems, not failure problems. But if you look at the data, now is the best time. So I insist on looking at the data. I look, you know, really looking at the information. And uh, when we do that, what we see is, is often uh, things are much better than we ever imagined. You know, I, I once explained that if you publish a newspaper called Reality, uh, it would be a mile thick. The first quarter inch is, you know, the Global Mail or the New York Times, and it you know, it scares the living daylights out of you and you want to lock your doors and close the border and uh, hunker down. But the rest of the mile that doesn't get published every day in, in, in our newspapers is massive change. It's people working together, cooperating, collaborating, 
having conversations like this about how to make the world a better place and doing it. Um, that's who we really are. So the, the cynicism and the negative is not who we are. We convince ourselves that we, <laughs> we convince ourselves that's who we are, but it's actually not who we are. Who we really are is extraordinarily collaborative and cooperative. I mean, you know, today in the world, you can get on an airplane, get off in maybe 190 countries, and your cell phone is going to work, and your laptop's going to plug in, and you're going to, you know, go about your business, and no one's going to kill you, <laughs> and, you know, and mm -hmm. you're going to collaborate with people, and you're going to do business with them. And you're going to create new things and you're going to change the world. That's what we're really doing. Uh, but for some reason, we can't see that picture. And you're right in saying that it really goes back to our nervous system. Uh, you know, we're designed to be vigilant for the worst thing that could happen. But the problem with that is that, is that if, we, if we only see that, we behave selfishly. Mm. At, a at a time when we need to behave cooperatively. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, if we're looking at the progress that we've made, uh, you know, whether that's individually or as a society retroactively, how do we use that sense of optimism and understanding the progress that we've made to propel us forward, um, especially today where there's just so much going on, it can feel just a little overwhelming to see progress and to see kind of um, forward momentum, I suppose. Um, I think we have to consciously focus on it. We have to mm -hmm. actually deliberately focus on the positive. You know, we do that in our work, obviously. We, you know, when we did Massive Change, uh, an exhibition that opened in Vancouver and went to Toronto and, Van and uh, Chicago, you know, we spent about 20 person years studying the people solving the world's greatest problems. Yeah, so we spent uh, you know, uh, an incredible uh, effort uh, to really study and learn from the greatest innovators and problem solvers in the world. And we met people who were extraordinary. You know? I mean, just people who were taking on the toughest challenges, some of which had vexed us you know, since the beginning of history for us. You know, we met the people who took smallpox off the face of the earth. Um, and that effort was led by a man named Larry Brilliant. And Larry Brilliant is truly brilliant. <laughs> and, you know, he solved the problem that killed hundreds of millions of people. It is no longer a killer. No one in this century is going to die of smallpox. And, you know, we know everything about Lady Gaga. And... You know, most people know nothing about Larry Brilliant. And Lady Gaga is brilliant, but Larry Brilliant is way more brilliant. Mm. And we need to know about Larry Brilliant. And, you know, I really make it a practice to consciously focus on positive things that are being produced in the world. And as a consequence, you know, I've really developed a practice of changing the world. Yeah. Who's inspiring you these days? What what are you seeing out there and who's making an impact that's really just gives you pause? If anyone gives you pause these days, uh, who who's doing that for you? Um, there are incredible people, um, especially the young generation. 
um, they are not waiting for us to solve things. Um, you know, a new generation is basically saying, we're inheriting this, you know, um, I won't use the language that I would normally use. <laughs> you can uh, if you of, want to. <laughs> kind of mess that, uh, you know, we're inheriting this mess that is, you know, that's come down to us, but we're not going to wait uh, in hopes that, uh, that these folks are going to change it. Uh, we're going to change it ourselves. It's extraordinary what, uh, what these folks are doing. They're taking on the, the challenges that we face. It's a social movement and it's inspiring. And they're really, you know, they're really um, making, making the world a better place. Yeah, absolutely. And when we talk about empathy, what do you think is, you know, in regards to the design community, what do you think the design community is doing a good job at when it, through the lens of empathy? And where do you think, you know, I mean, I guess progress can always be made, but where do you think that, you know, there needs to be a little bit more work done in terms of the considerations and the approach to thinking by integrating that sense of empathy? I don't think designers really fully appreciate or grasp how powerful they are. You know, we live at that kind of fulcrum moment. We live at that kind of critical moment when the future is going to be decided. We're going to decide how we're going to live for decades uh, in the future. You know, when you're deciding what you're going to do, when, when you're deciding how a product is going to be produced, how something's going to happen, how a process is going to change, um, you know, the kind of material we're going to use, the energy we're going to use, when you're making those decisions, you're deciding how people are going to live, you know, in some cases, billions of people, uh, how they're going to live uh, for, for years and decades to come. And I don't think we really fully appreciate that kind of power that we have. You know, what I'm trying to do in my work and everything that I, I do is to help designers really understand and grasp that power that we have a leadership role, that we have a leadership uh, methodology in design. I mean, if you think about what we do, we have the power to envision a future and systematically execute the vision. That's the best definition of leadership I can find. So I think the more that we can really understand how important that is, how powerful it is, and really you know, take responsibility for it. Because I think that you know, in the past, designers were a kind of subset of business. You know, the, the heavy lifting was done by the business people. And we were the kind of aesthetes mm. that chose the color. Uh, but more and more, we have the power to design what we do, not just what we look like. And that was, you know, Steve Jobs was really important in, in really defining design in that way. You know, he said, design is how it works. So it's, it's really what we do, not just what it looks like. Now, of course, what it looks like is a powerful lever in what, in, in what we do. It's a powerful way of making what we do work. But ultimately, it's really what we do that counts. We have that uh, power to change. And I think the more that we can step into that conversation and be the voice, you know, we can be the voice of those generations, you know, of those future generations who are going to either thrive or suffer the consequences of the decisions that we're making. 
Now, if we rewind a little bit and just kind of talk about your childhood, you grew up in a mining community in Sudbury, Ontario. And in the documentary, documentary, I noticed there was this really big duality between the darkness of the mines and the light of positivity that you display today. So how did a closed, you know, a somewhat closed community give birth to such an open mind and such a, a different kind of perspective to viewing the world? And, and how did that influence your worldview? Um, you know, I was very, very fortunate that I had a few people in my life who really, they saw something in me and they kind of helped me on a pathway uh, to kind of find, you know, the, find what I was looking for and find, you know, what I really love to do. Um, I had a teacher in high school. I didn't take art classes in high school. So, um, you know, I got to, I was intending to go into science and technology. When I got to the end of high school, I decided I wanted to go to art school and I went to, you know, I kind of, I was in the, I was in the technology lab and the, and I built a radio and I was kind of messing with it. And I decided, you know what, I don't want to do this. So I put the radio away and I went down to the guidance office and I said, you know, I made a mistake. I want to go to art school. Um, and they said, well, it's too late. You know, you should have taken art classes. And I said, I'm 16 years old. It can't be too late. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I said, there must be, you know, there must be alternatives. Like, you know, this can't be over uh, you know, at this point. Uh, and they said, well, you could go to this other, you know, you have to go to another town, you know, take a course and you have to spend an extra year in high school. Um, and if you take, if you go meet this man, Jack Smith, and he accepts you into his program, you'll spend an extra year just doing art. Um, and that's what I did. I went to see him. He took me in. It was his last year of teaching. He was 65. And I spent a year and I just completely fell in love. It was like, uh, it was the best year of my life. Um, I, I found what I was looking for. It was incredible. And he knew, uh, he knew everything that I wanted to know. And um, he taught me how to do my own color photography, color photographic printing, color separations and plate making. And I was doing full color lithographic printing on a one color Heidelberg offset press that I refurbished. It was fantastic. And I, I stopped everything else. You know, I, I got benched on the, on the hockey team and then I got cut, which infuriated my parents. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I had to, to kind of move out at that point, they were not happy with me, but I moved into town and I finished high school um, and he helped me to apply to college uh, and to get there. And it changed my life. And that experience really, you know, it opened my life in a way that uh, was really profound. And it's been the most extraordinary adventure I could have hoped for. And I remember, you know, I, did, I printed the um, commencement booklet for my graduation. You know, they produced a little booklet and I, I, I took the job of designing it and, and printing it. And um, I had to finish it on Father's Day. And um, I went into the school on a, a Sunday to print it, to finish the printing. And I told Mr. Smith, you know, please don't come in. And he said, I'm going to come in and help you make sure it gets done. Um, and I said, look, it's Father's Day. You don't need to. And uh, But he came in to see me and to help out. 
and we had a chance to have a conversation. And I said, look, you know, it's the end of the year. Um, it's coming to the end of this ex extraordinary experience. It's, you know, I couldn't have hoped for better than this. Um, I can't imagine ever having this again. It's been, you know, I, anything that I think of, I can do. You know, we have ceramics and printmaking and artists, you know, painting and drawing and typography and, and everything. And I said, you know, I, I can't imagine ever having this again. And he said, look, I want you to just always focus on the work, uh, you know, do the work, put the work first. And if you put the work first, everything else will line up behind the work. The money will be there. The opportunities will be there. And don't get distracted from the work because in the work, the work calls everything out of you. Um, and that's where the real opportunity is. And that's what I've been, you know, basically been listening to Mr. Smith ever since. And in a sense, I guess you are taking the first steps towards designing the life that you <clears throat> desired for yourself. Yeah. And I, I realized recently, actually, that, you know, ever since then, I've been actually trying to rebuild my high school. <laughs> and uh, I've got almost all of it done, but except for the ceramics. <laughs> right. I still have the ceramics part. Right. And so when you were starting to think about the life that you wanted for yourself and the, the direction that you wanted to go in, how have the goals changed for you since then? How the goalposts change? Huh, that's a great question. Uh, they've changed a lot. You know, when I first started, just getting the opportunity to work was the was the goal. You know, I just needed an opportunity to to work. And I was really dogged. I remember, you know, I, I remember there was a guy that I really wanted to show my portfolio to um, that I had been trying to get in touch with. And I saw him on the street one day and I followed <laughs> I followed him and and kind of accosted him and showed him the, my portfolio on the hood of a car. <laughs> like look at this thing. You know, I was very dogged in in my pursuits, um, but that that was really the first work was just getting the opportunity to work, um, and then over time it was really you know gaining a kind of expertise and proficiency and really learning how to be a designer, um, and I was very very fortunate. I um, you know I didn't finish college. I was only there for a year and a half. Um, I had a kind of rough time, but I got a job as a designer and. And I worked with a couple of people who are really, a few people who are really great designers. Um, and so I learned a lot from them about design and typography and really you know, how to be a designer. And then that really turned into my own work. And as I, I began to do my own work, that turned into a real practice, you know, like, like having my own interests, my own research, and ultimately my own writing and publishing. And that has been a kind of lifelong project. What transpired over the long haul is that, you know, I started as a graphic designer, but over time, my work became really designing what you do, not only what you look like. Mm. Um, and so most of our work now is really, you know, designing your future, designing your enterprise, you know, designing what you do and not, not only what you look like. Yeah. And, you know, have you always had throughout the course of the trajectory of your career, have you always had a very clear vision 
or a very, I guess a very clear identity of who you wanted to be as a designer and the purpose, your purpose as a designer, or, you know, where along that journey, do you think you really understood your mission and your purpose? Um, I sort of had a pretty clear sense of what I wanted to do early on. I mean, it was pretty early on. And then I was very fortunate to find people who wanted to do that. You know, I had a kind of clear ambition and I, I wasn't clear how to do it or exactly what it was, but I had a kind of feeling and I knew I had to find people who, who wanted to do that. Um, and then I was very fortunate to find them. You know, I found a man named Sanford Quinter was really instrumental. He was one of the first people that I worked with who really um, shared that vision and he could kind of see it and even see things that I couldn't see and opened up doors and opened up possibilities that were, uh, that were really cool. And, and, you know, that was a great adventure and we're still working together today. That was, you know, that was, I think almost 40 years ago. So, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've worked with some of the best uh, people in the world, you know, people like Rem Kolhas and Frank Gehry, you know, Frank was a really important mentor for me, you know, not only as a, as a designer, but also, you know, as a man, he was, and he actually gave me the same advice as Mr. Smith, you know, like 20 years later, he pulled me aside and said, look, because at the time I was getting a lot of attention. I was getting a lot of, uh, you know, press for the work I was doing. And he said, look, very few people I know have survived what's happening to you. You know, very few people ever did good work after it uh, because they got sucked up in this in this world. And mm -hmm. and he's, he basically said, you know, focus on the work because the work doesn't care about you. It doesn't know if you're, you know, a big shot or not. It doesn't know if you're famous. Uh, the work doesn't care. Take the ego out of the equation. Yeah, just do the work, you know, stick to the work. And it was great advice. And, you know, it was, and it reminded me of Mr. Smith again. Yeah, yeah, full circle. How do you, I mean, this is a very broad question, but how do you think a design-centric approach to thinking and solving problems has, you know, the capacity to change the world? It's a big question, but maybe not so big when you consider some of the projects that you've worked on. I mean, it's, it's the only way we'll do it. I mean, there's no other way out of here. You know, it's the way that we created the problems and it's the only way out of here. You know, we're not going to solve these problems randomly. You know, they're right. not going to solve themselves. You know, we can't just wait in hopes that they will solve themselves. Uh, so the only way we're going to solve these problems is deliberately by design. We're going to, we're going to basically figure out how to understand the problem and especially how to understand it in context. You know, one of the biggest changes, you know, when we talk about life-centered design, it's really understanding problems in context, in the context of the ecology that sustains us. I mean, so much of the damage that we've done has been because we took the problem out of context. So when we created the car, you know, we took that problem of speed out of the ecology you know we said okay let's we we want speed let's create something that gives us speed 
um, we don't care about the implications. We don't care about the toxic explosion that we've created in order to get speed. And we're just going to pump that stuff into the environment. And we'll call that an externality. And we don't have to worry about it. It's not our problem. It's someone else's problem. Mm. Um, and the fact that it's going to reorganize the entire world of oil and geopolitics, we don't care. We got speed and we got uh, pleasure. Now we can say, you know what? We want speed and pleasure, but we want to solve those other things too. We're going to put that problem back in context and we want to solve the problem in context. We want to solve it in the ecology that sustains us. We want beauty and joy and you know we want the the lovely effects of speed but we don't want to destroy the ecology in order to get it and that makes a higher order complexity problem we just have to solve it at a higher order that's what you know it's it's what i call a success problem not a failure problem I wanted to ask, because the, the, you mentioned this before, actually, in the interview, between the difference of a success problem and a, and a failure problem, what, what is the main distinction between those two? Well, if we had failed more frequently, we'd be a billion people, and we could behave like frat boys, and it wouldn't make a difference. It really wouldn't matter. But with we solved so many problems, like smallpox you know like and and many 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 others and we're continuing to you know the gates foundation predicts that we'll take i think six more diseases off the face of the earth by 2050 six more major killers mm. off the face of the earth so what happens is that we get more and more people and they live longer um, and so you now have eight billion people will go to something around 10 billion by mid-century maybe more that creates new kinds of problems. Uh, it's the problems of success, that we have longevity uh, and quantity. And when you, when you put those two things together, you get real impact. Um, and so now we have this new set of problems that are really higher order complexity problems uh, that need to be solved in context, in the context of the ecologies that sustain us. And it's a whole new beast. We need a new level of methodology to in order to to solve those kinds of problems and that's what life center design is really all about it's about saying look, look we gotta we gotta up our game we can't use the old method that created the problems yeah uh, if we expect to solve them In the documentary, there is a part that focuses on the work that you did with the Guatemalan government. And honestly, I found that to be so incredibly moving and it almost got me a little emotional, maybe because of where we're at right now, where hope feels a little fleeting sometimes. And that was so based on, on hope. And so you were commissioned to give Guatemalans hope for a better future after they had emerged from civil war can you talk a little bit about that project and what you learned from that experience that has influenced you know your work after that yeah it was i think one of the most extraordinary projects that i've personally been involved in um, we got a letter a letter showed up on my desk for 
from Maria del Carmen Asenia, and she was a minister of education in Guatemala. And she explained that, you know, they had had 36 years of civil war and that their folks, their people had lost the ability to dream. And that, you know, when they asked their children what they want to be when they grow up, they didn't have an answer. They didn't imagine growing up. But they had had 36 years of the culture of death and it had wiped out this idea of the future. And their research had you know, led them to the work that I had been doing and that they wanted to, to see if I could help them. And I was really moved by that. I mean, I didn't even imagine that the idea of dreaming was an idea. I just thought we'd, we all do it. I mean, it never occurred to me that we would have to know how to do it. It happened really quickly. Literally a few days later, we were on our way to Guatemala. And when we arrived, they took me to meet the vice president. And they said, this is Bruce. And he's going to redesign Guatemala. <laughs> and I, said, I, said, I said, guys, like, no, that's not going to happen. Um, uh, I, I didn't say anything about that. <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't, you know, we didn't talk about that at all. Uh, you're going to do that. I can help you. You know, I got, I got lots of, of tools and skills and, and strategy. You know, I'm going to help you. But ultimately, you're going to do it. You know, I got my own problems and I'm going to get on a plane. You know, at some point, I, I'm going home. This is your gig. And they said, well, you got to help us change the name of the country then. I said, what, you guys really think big. Why do you want to do that? Uh, and they, they explained that the indigenous people, they called it Guate. And when the Spanish got there, they hated it. So they called it Guatemala, uh, which is bad Guate. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, how would you like to be living in the United States a bad place every day? Um, and I said, wow, you really got a point. And so we started our work. We did our research and we worked with them and we, we, we studied what was going on and we discovered that there were in fact thousands of organizations uh, working to reimagine and rebuild Guatemala from all over the world and many, many, many from Guatemala itself. We would have these meetings where we would bring people together. We'd invite, you know, I, I said, look, I just want to meet anyone who's, who's trying to uh, help things make, make Guatemala better. And so we'd make these meetings Everyone would come, we'd just say, look, just explain what you're doing, you know, and we'd go around and by the end of the meeting, there would be collaborations happening. One organization is doing teacher materials, another is teaching teachers in the jungle and training teachers. And, and they, had, they hadn't known about each other. They hadn't heard of one another. And we realized, wow, there's a, a huge opportunity if we simply connect them. In part of the process, uh, our team added an extra A to Guatemala. And we called it Guate Amala. And Amala in Spanish is the love of. So it was the love of Guate. And we designed, we said, look, you've had 36 years of the culture of death. You can't just turn it off and turn on the culture of life. You have to build it. You have to build the foundations that we take for granted. You know, in, in North America and in, in Europe and in other places, you know, we have these foundations that you know, we, we talk about, you know, entrepreneurial and bootstrapping and individualism and all that, but it's built on a foundation that we take for granted of built by people who gave their our freedom and our uh, entrepreneurial uh, you know, capacity. And we have the ability to dream because the, those people who, who built our freedom. Um, and who, you know, who died for it. 
Um, and so we said, look, you know, we're, we have to build the culture of life. And the culture of life has a series of foundations. We're going to design those foundations. We're going to help you build them. And we're, we're going to get started. It's going to take a long time. It's not going to be overnight. Uh, but, but you're going to do it. And, and Guateamala is the movement to do that. And we started, they did an incredible event in uh, Guatemala City. We hope to get 1,000 people signed up to this movement. And in 10 days, we had uh, 20,000 people. And this is in a place, you know, in, in Guatemala, back then and, and still today, I think people don't put their names on lists because, you know, your name gets on a list and the black SUVs showed up and you're never seen again. Hmm. Um, and so to get 20,000 people to, to put their information onto a list and to, and to join publicly a movement uh, for, for Guatemala was beyond what anyone expected including us. And we had to have emergency meetings to try to figure out, you know, what are we going to do with 20,000 people and 20,000 volunteers uh, committed to this. Um, we started working with 200 organizations at the time. We featured 200 organizations in that first event. And I think today they're working with 2,600. Now, it was a very, very uh, challenging uh, project and experience. You know, we worked with one woman who uh, she was working with a community where they had seen 200 massacres over that 36-year period uh, in their region, you know, in their in their community, uh, 200 mass killings. You know, they had to at the end of the war, they had to draw a line. You know, they had to basically draw a line and say, you know, anything that happened before this date was wartime, and anything after this date is murder. Um, but the only way to kind of get the combatants to really Put their weapons down was to actually give amnesty before a certain date. Wow. And in this and in this community, they had actually killed, you know, they had gone in and killed every male in the extended community, every baby, grandfather, father, you know, invalid. I mean, any male person was killed. And the women, you know, to that time had not been able to talk about it. The trauma was so great that they had not been able to even come to uh, have you know, a private conversation about it, let alone a public conversation. Like you realize the kind of challenges that you're dealing with. And you know, when we did the project, um, you know, as we were developing it, they at one point they said, you know, you have to present this in Los Angeles because Los Angeles is the second biggest Guatemalan city. We went to LA rather, and we presented the project. Um, and I, I went with um, Emilio Mendez, who's one of the leaders of the group, and and I presented it there. And uh, before I did the presentation, uh, the consul general, who's like the mayor of LA in, in the Guatemalan community, he he started first, and he said, "As everyone here knows, uh, Guatemala suffers under apartheid." And he's the representative of the government in Los Angeles. <laughs> I was like, did, did he just say that? Yes, he did. That He just said the, out loud what everyone knows. And we presented our project, and our project was radically inclusive. And it was the whole, you know, we had Mayan people in our group. And, and the whole idea was that it was actually, you know, it's time to change. And it's time to make the, the future of Guatemala inclusive. But we were accused in that 
situation of being CIA agents during that presentation. And these two guys were there and they were really super aggressive. And they said, who's paying you? Who, you know, who are you? Who's paying you? How did you get here? Who, who invited you? you know, and I was very deliberate and careful and said, look, you know, I, I'm here with Emilio Mendez. I frankly don't know him very well. I met him a few months ago. Seems like a wonderful guy to me, but you, he's here. You should ask him yourself. And uh, they eventually came up afterwards and said, look, we're sorry to be so heavy, but we never know, you know where, where that kind of thing is going to be coming from. And I realized that you know, you're dealing with a kind of history and complexity that is really, you know, really intense. Um, and in fact, when we started the project, you know, the folks on our team, you know, our, our collaborators in Guatemala said, look, if you don't do this right, um, you know, people are going to get killed and they could be your people. And, you know, as a designer, I mean, I had never even contemplated, you know, having our people killed for the work that we do. So it was a, it was a kind of whole new order of magnitude. And it meant that we, you know, we had to be really thoughtful and careful and deliberate about everything that we did. Mm. Wow. I, that's just such a incredible story for so many different reasons. And um, goodness. Um, so I, I know we have um, a few more minutes here and I want to just ask you a few more questions, but our publication, we focus on the entrepreneurial community, which similar to designers, can technically be anyone that wants to solve a problem when you think about how we define entrepreneurship. And a lot of the discussions that we have are around innovation and disruption. How do you encourage your clients or colleagues to disassociate from traditional or institutional ways of thinking in order to progress and, and move the dial? Like, What are the questions that you ask them to ask of themselves? Uh-huh. Uh, that's a great question. I mean, mostly by the time they get to us, they've already they're already fully briefed on why they have to do that. Right. Uh, so, so we don't have a lot of convincing to do. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, I think we're all you know we're all trying you know we're all constantly needing to understand how to kind of cross that bridge. And, you know, one of the things that I learned from working with Mayor Daly here in Chicago is to reinforce stability to embrace change, which sounds counterintuitive. When I hear the words massive change, I get excited. When a lot of people hear massive change, they hold onto their wallet and back out of the room. They're, they're not excited. They, they want mass to stay the same. Mm. So helping people to understand you know, we're going to keep our values, we're going to keep our culture, we're going to keep our society, we're, you know, we're actually living our values. We're not throwing away who we are. We're actually making a better version of who we are, and reinforcing who we are, you know, they need to know that they're going to be okay, that it's going to be better for them, not worse. And I think that is a that understanding, I mean, Daly was such a brilliant political uh, operative. You know, he knew that what they needed to know is that, you know, they're happy with change if it's going to be better. You know, that what they don't want is change that is really unknown and, you know, that's, that's going to throw their world upside down. 
and you know the reality is uh, of a lot of change is that it's not very well designed um, mm. and it does throw people's worlds upside down you know we try to do two stability uh, initiatives for every one uh, change initiative uh, where we can you know like how can you do two things that are going to help people understand that we're going to be okay so that we can do the, the one thing that's really going to move forward right last question what is your mission at the end of the day what's the bigger picture what's your purpose that just connects everything together um and and is the common thread between your work your personal life what really is that central force for you i think for me it's a thriving world you know it's really a thriving beautiful rich accessible equitable world we have the opportunity uh, right in front of us to really design the life ahead of us uh, to be uh, you know, richer and more equitable and more exciting than anything that's happened in history. It really is possible. It's really right in front of us to do. And I'm, you know, I'm going to spend every, every minute of my life trying to make that happen. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm committed to. Great. Um, thank you so much for the wonderful chat. Um, it's uh, you've been so generous with your time, and I really appreciate it. Um, and it's just been so insightful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really delightful talking to you. Growing up in Sudbury, Ontario, Bruce started out as a graphic designer in the 1980s and has since built a career that has earned him the respect of today's foremost minds in design, advertising, and architecture. His perspective and design has influenced entire nations, all built on the premise of fact-based optimism and hope. Through his work, he's taught the world that change is possible and within each of our own grasps if we want it, if we plan for it, consider it, and design for it. Design is not only a powerful tool, but a way of life that has the ability to solve the most challenging problems the world has ever faced. Think about all the ways we can change our own worlds if we all approach problems with a little bit more optimism and perspective. If we all face the world a little more like Bruce. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?